Welcome to Enterprise Masters, a podcast from Wipro Ventures about enterprise software startups. Hello, I'm Bipla Badhya, along with my friend and business partner, Venu Pemaraju. Hi, I'm Venu Pemaraju. Together, Biplab and I manage Wipro Ventures, and our charter is to invest in early to mid-stage enterprise software companies that are strategically important to Wipro. So this week, uh, our guest is Ed Sem, uh, Ed's a partner at uh, Bold Start VC, an early stage first check VC firm based in New York. Ed is a great guest to kick off our first show uh, because he's the first check into a company and brings a really unique set of experiences investing and working with incredibly successful enterprise SaaS companies. And some of his investments that have gone on to raise multiple financing rounds are customer, security scorecard, big ID, among others. Morning, Ed. Great to see you again. Absolutely. We, of course, know you quite well, and um, you know we are we are investors in your fund. But tell us uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for our audience, and tell us a little bit about Bold Start Ventures, and you know what should entrepreneurs know about Bold Start Ventures? So hey, thank you for having me. Uh, It's been great to be partnered uh, with with you uh, and and BitLab, and in particular with Wipro. And we can definitely hit upon that later and why. That matters in terms of enterprise uh, software and startups. Uh, as for myself, I've been a venture capitalist based out of New York for uh, over 20 years, I think 23 years to be exact, uh, investing in enterprise. And I remember many years ago, people asked, why are you even in New York investing in enterprise? And I said, when Willie Sutton was asked why he robbed banks, he said, because that's where the money is. And so the question is, is that I think in New York now or in the tri-state area, there are over 60 plus Fortune 500 companies in New York. And so to be close to the customer and understand their pain points, to understand how they're moving to the cloud, to understand how they're building software to not be Amazon, I think is really important. And so what we do is we're a venture capital firm, but we're, we actually own the moniker First Check. We actually have the URL firstcheck.vc. And Bold Start Ventures was built to be the best enterprise seed fund or the best first check fund um, you know, around. That's our goal. And we think that we differentiate ourselves by uh, investing very early and, and really understanding the product with the founders and the pain point, uh, but also matching them with kind of our network of Fortune 500 relationships to help them get better product feedback, to help them get you know, potential pilots, even customer relationships much earlier in their life cycle, which is also why we're very excited to be partnered with Wipro because uh, you are a leader in kind of the services uh, uh, kind of market and you have a massive global 2000 Rolodex and we've, we've done a number of great events with you. Great introduction, thank you very much. I, I know you have a very uh, rich background in, uh, in enterprise. Now, uh, you know, one of the things that's happening and, you know, it's, it's an understatement that the whole uh, venture industry is kind of evolving and, you know, new, new players are coming in every day, the rounds are bigger, the number of startups is also increasing uh, dramatically. You know, how do you decide, you know, at that stage, you know, between product, market, people, how do you decide, you know, as a first check, you know, you are the one taking that first risk? You know, it's really interesting. That's a great question and something people ask us every day. And the fact of the matter is if that if you look at our portfolio, 90% of our investments are usually pre-product. And it's usually technical engineers coming in 
they, and most engineers, when they have a problem or a pain, it's one of those things where it's an itch they can't get rid of. Every day they wake up, they're thinking in the car about this problem and how do I solve it. They're in the shower thinking about how do I solve this problem. They're at work, you know, on their coffee break thinking about how they ha- how do they have this problem. And so for, for us, I think a big part of what we look for is founders that have the pain, that really understand kind of the problem that they have and that they're mission-driven. You know, we want passionate founders that are very mission-driven about where they're going. And I think there's been a big debate just over the years and forever. You know, is it the founder or the market? Is it the jockey or the horse? And for us, I have to tell you, it's kind of both because um, if the founder's not great, the market's awesome, you're not going to (laughs) execute. And the markets, um, uh, did I just say the founder market? Yeah. Um, and then if the market is, is, uh, is phenomenal and the founder is phenomenal, then you have an actual absolute A++ opportunity. But we kind of have to have both because also we only do enterprise software and we're always trying to peek around the corners to see what's ahead. And, and I think so, we, but we need a combination of the two. We need founders who are passionate, mission-driven, who have the product sense abilities to actually um, uh, build kind of what they're talking about, to have the technical and engineering capabilities to, to do that. And then also, I think the missing part when you're working with technical founders is that they need an ability to sell. They need to sell everything. They need to sell new employees on why they should join them. They need to sell kind of new customers on, on kind of why they should use their product. So you have to have that sensibility too. So then you might ask, is that, is that looking for Superman or Superwoman? Um, no, I mean, we're, we're fortunate enough that we can find enough of these folks and not everyone's going to score a perfect 10 on every category. And that's our job. Our job is to partner with them very early to help them on that journey. And then, you know, over time they'll have other partners, they'll have series A firms, they'll have strategic firms who once again, continue to add a different value as, as a company grows. Now, the thing is, we always look for people who are very passionate about what they're doing. But at the same time, you know, given that you are investing in, you know, kind of a revolutionary products as opposed to evolutionary products, you want them to be flexible also because the markets may not happen the way the way they think. How do you advise your entrepreneurs to be passionate, but at the same time and stick to their original vision, but at the same time be flexible enough to see where the market or the customers take take them to? Most of the companies we like to invest in are actually creating new categories, and that's really hard to do. And typically, there aren't, for an enterprise software company, there aren't line items on the budget. It's usually discretionary budget coming out of the IT kind of uh, framework. The other thing that we do, as I mentioned earlier, is we sit close to the customers to really understand um, how they're thinking about their pain points, you know, what, where are they willing to work with earlier stage startups and not, what types of companies are they willing to work with. And so the framework I like to use, I always like to use analogies, um, but Henry Ford is famous as once saying that if I asked my customers what they want, wanted, they'd want a faster horse. And of course he came out with the car. And so I think for our framework, it's really important when we work with founders is that you need to figure out how your revolutionary technology is gonna feel like a faster horse to that uh, enterprise buyer, but in actuality, you're giving them a car. And then you may be get, uh, escalating to a, to a um, to a flying car or, or even kind of, a, you know, a, a spaceship, right? And so I think for founders to be flexible, it means you need to take customer feedback, you need to take market feedback, you need to take feedback from your own employees, but that's not it. You still need to have that vision, right? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, if I'm investing and all you're giving someone is a faster horse, that's not really interesting. Uh, you're not going to build a enduring business. And so I think if you take that framework, you can't only just listen to your customers,
you, you definitely take their feedback, but you still need to have some of your own direction, right? And that's really, really important uh, in terms of the types of people we like to invest in. So what you're saying is that, you know, your entrepreneurs need to have the conviction, but at the same time, they should have the ability to look at multiple data points to validate their vision and if needed, make adjustments to that particular vision. Now, changing gears a little bit, you know, a lot of times when, you know, early stage uh, or first time entrepreneurs come to us, uh, you know, the, one of the questions they ask us is, you know, how much should I raise? You know, what should be the valuation of this particular seed stage round? And given that you do this, you know, on a on a daily basis, how do you decide, you know, what should be the amount that you should uh, assign to a particular idea? And then uh, how do you supplement that team? Because studies have also shown that a founding team that's made up of two or three people is, has a much higher rate of success than just one person. What's really important for us when we invest is understanding the milestones and the goals that the founder has. So before we even talk about cash or valuation or anything else, we say, okay, how long, how much money do you want to raise and how long will it last you? And typically from a seed uh, or first check perspective, we like to have the cash last at least 18 months with no revenue forecasted at all, just based on expenses. And since we're investing pre-product, guess what? Most of the initial expenses are, are engineering. And so we kind of, we like to always say we work backwards. What do we need to do to achieve the next round of funding, right? Because this is a, this is a pass the baton kind of game to get to the next phase. Um, and so if you think about that framework, I'll just give you an example. 18 months, you're probably out raising capital, you know, 12, 12 months in. So from zero to 12 months from the time we give you the check, how many engineers do you need? When, does, when do you get an alpha product out? When do you get a beta product out? When will you get some pilot customers signed up? Um, and you know, will that be enough proof points to go out and talk to the folks on Sand Hole Road to raise the next round? And for some founders, they may say they only need a million and a half. Uh, and other founders, depending on the product complexity or uh, the maturity kind of of the team, uh, they may need three. And some founders may walk in where it's two co-founders, some might have three, some might be a single founder. So then we spend time assessing how long will it take for you to get to critical mass on your engineering team? Because once again, let's work backwards. If we give you a check and it's gonna take you six months to hire two engineers, that's kind of a, you're kind of stalled, right? And imagine that the technical founder is still building the product uh, uh, you know, on themselves. We like to see momentum. In fact, we like to talk to founders before they're even raising capital. And usually the pressing point is uh, for them to start the companies and leave their current business is that they have four engineers ready to go and they can't join unless we incorporate. They can't join unless there's capital. So in our minds, when a situation like that, you're coming right out of the gate with five engineers with a product vision and a focus. And the second our money goes in, it's going towards building with, you know, a pretty complete initial team. Continuing on that thread, uh, another question that, you know, we we get a lot from entrepreneurs is, uh, I'm a first-time entrepreneur. Uh, am I at a disadvantage? Uh, so when you, when you as a first-check investor, when you look at it, how do you, uh, how do you evaluate somebody who's a first-time entrepreneur versus somebody who's done this before? And somebody who maybe came through your network versus somebody who's not part of your network. Yeah, so for us, it comes down once again to what I said earlier. It comes down to the founder and the market opportunity itself. And whether they're a first-time founder or a third-time founder, 
it's not as relevant. If you look at our portfolio in our last fund, I'd probably say 60% happen to be second time or third time founders. That's just because we've been in the business a long time and it's always nice to have founders who have exited prior to uh, with us, you know, as, a, as investors in fund one coming back to us, which is a great kind of like NPS score for us. It says that they really value kind of our relationship and vice versa. But at the same time, you know, we've got some amazing, amazing first time founders um, that we've invested in and they've gone off to create value. I mean, for example, I'll give you an interesting company. It's called Security Scorecard. And the founder, Alex Yampolsky, this is his first company. And before that, he was at uh, Guilt Group as the CISO. And before that, he was a cryptographer at Goldman Sachs. Uh, and when he was at Guilt Group, he had this problem. And the problem was is that he believed, and everyone knows, that you're only as secure as your least secure vendor. And he would sit there sending out questionnaires all the time, uh, onboarding new vendors. And you know, back in the day, I'm not sure if you remember when Target got hacked, it got hacked through an HVAC vendor, which connected to the Target systems. And so he said, how can I create an automated outside-in system that reflects the vendor risk around someone without having to do the questionnaires anymore? And so that was the, the bugging pain that bothered him every single day. And he came into the office uh, with the vision and the idea. He had validated it with a few kind of potential customers, not that he had a product, but he actually created kind of a, a little GUI and that people could see what visually what that would look like and how that would work. And then, of course, he, he had a whole framework and a whole layout in terms of the product roadmap over the next four quarters. So product's very important. So he was a first-time founder. Fast forward to today, he's raised over $60 million from Sequoia and Google Ventures. He's got you know, every Fortune 500 as a customer now. Um, so you know, first-time founders that actually have this pain, uh, that have a product building sensibility. And he wasn't even at a like, you know, tech startup before that. Um, right? And then, of course, we've got second-time founders or third-time founders. Um, you know, folks like Rahul Vora from Superhuman, uh, he is actually building um, a productivity software to build the fastest uh, email client uh, out there and charge people for it. And we had backed his prior company called Reportive into Fund One. He exited to LinkedIn. And he had this vision. He was the first person that hacked into Google Apps to replace the ads on the side with something actually more useful. And he was going to build an application development framework so anyone could build apps into the sidebar uh, inside of Google. Fast forward, sold his company to LinkedIn. He was there for a couple years, and as soon as he left, we're like, can we be the first check in the new company? And he is continuing the same mission. He's still inside a mail. He's still doing the same thing. He still wants to make people brilliant at what they do. But that's an example of a second-time founder. Um, and, and so it, it really doesn't matter to us. But once again, both of them were mission-driven and very, very product-focused. Uh, because at the end of the day, you need, to, you, you need a reason to believe. And, and the product itself tells the story. What about the people who are, you know, first-time entrepreneurs and not part of the network? I can tell you what they shouldn't do. What they shouldn't do is send me a consumer deal or some other deal where they, it was clear that they did not read our website. Um, there are lots of kind of random um, pitches we get that is completely irrelevant to us. So I'll say number one is do your homework. Um, number two is I got to tell you that we're, we're open to looking, always open to looking at new ideas from people that we don't know. But I think it's really important for, for first-time founders to figure out how to network into the venture capitalist. Um, I may not know them, but if a founder in one of my existing portfolio companies somehow 
uh, you reach out to that person and get a developer relationship or get advice or reach out to someone else that we know very well, reach out to a co-investor. I think it's really important to uh, demonstrate an ability to, to network and, and get to people because that's going to show us that you can go network to other people to get new customers down the line. So it doesn't necessarily have to be someone that we've known for 20 years, but we do think it's important as a, as a bar, go find someone. I mean, we have all our portfolio companies on the website. We're constantly talking on Twitter and LinkedIn and all these other things. Actually, I've actually met people just looking at uh, reading my Twitter and just DMing me, uh, you know, asking a question and just showing some specific knowledge. So, so just really be relevant and focused when you kind of do that. It's much easier today from the channels that we have than it was 10 or 20 years ago. 10 or 20 years ago is much more of a black box. But now most people are out there kind of letting, um, letting the world know kind of what they're interested in, how they're thinking about things. Um, and I get plenty of, plenty of messages all the time. You know, when you are looking at it and you said you're looking at pre-product, uh, but people who have a vision of a product, uh, but at the same time, there should be salespeople as well. I mean, these people should know how to sell their product. You know, it's not just having a vision, but you need to sell as well. But you do realize that a lot of these first time, you know, seed stage or, or early entrepreneurs may not be CEOs in the long run. At what point do you have those discussion with them that, you know, somebody else needs to now scale the company versus them? That's a great question. So I have to be honest with you, when we go in making an investment, we go in thinking that that founder is going to be the CEO for quite a long period of time and that we're going to be able to support them through and maybe bring them CEO coaching, maybe uh, introduce them to other founders that have scaled before who might join their advisory boards and be mentors to them. So I don't think we ever want to enter in situation. I mean, that's, that's especially at the first check round, you know, the founder is the visionary. They're, they're the, the four or the founders. They're the force behind the product behind kind of where the business is going. And, you know, I think the biggest thing for those founders is they need to sell the story to everyone. And the first story you need to sell is getting other employees on board. And I find it incredibly disruptive. You know, I've been in situations in later stage rounds. I've been doing this for a very long time where CEOs get changed and founders get moved. And it can be actually a death spiral. Other times it can be really, really good because if you work with the founder and they realize like, okay, I've taken it from zero to 15. You know what? I could bring a president under me, but maybe it's time for me to bring a CEO on board because I want to go back to doing what I love the most. Let's say it's product. So in those situations where the founder kind of works hand in hand with the investors and the board, those are the best situations ever. So it has to be um, the founders, I think, are, are a massive, massive part of the business. And we will never invest in a company unless we, unless we think the founders can take it um, you know, a long way. You know, this also reminds me of, you know, some of the things that, you know, I learned as, as you know, in my role in Intel Capital, where one of the leaders would say that, you know, entrepreneurs should think about who can grow the size of the pie, as opposed to worrying about the portion of the pie that is belonging to them. So it's better to have a smaller piece of a bigger pie than a bigger piece of a smaller pie. And if they think along those lines, it always helps them to bring in the right people to grow the size of the pie, essentially. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Um, but when we're getting in so early and it's all product, that's that's not even, you know, you got to believe that they, they can sell. They've hired and recruited engineers. You've put them in front of, um, you know, let's say we've put them in front of some Fortune 500 customer uh, potentials and they've given us feedback like, oh yeah, this person is very credible. I like what they're building. Have them come back in six months. 
sometimes we get situations where like, oh, that was a complete dud. So you can kind of screen some of these things out, but, but the founder in our mind is, is so core uh, to the story. Keeping the focus here, you know, towards towards the entrepreneur, you've done many seed stage investments, you know, a lot of them have been very successful. And I'm curious, you know, how do you translate it to advice for entrepreneurs? You know, what is it that you have learned from successes and failures that you would like the next set of entrepreneurs to kind of learn from and for you also to kind of learn from to see how you advise them and how you make your investment decisions? I think there's a lot of different examples of things that are done well and things that aren't done well. And uh, I'll give you one perspective. If I look at some of the companies that did not work out, the market just did not materialize. And that's not the founder's fault at all because the founder may start with a certain market opportunity they're focused on and they may maneuver to an adjacent market then to an adjacent market. Um, and sometimes, you know, they just can't get there. And so sometimes we say, is it the founder execution in terms of building the product or is the market? And, you know, frankly, you know, another term is pioneers get arrows in their backs. So sometimes you're just going to be way too early and the market will never materialize. But Frank, you know what's very interesting about those is that those founders that learned a ton, they'll be back again. And you know, it wasn't because of execution, it was just because of the market. And we believe too, right? Let's say we, we're invested and then clearly we believe the market might uh, materialize sooner than, rather than later. So that would be example one. Example two is since we only fund technical founders uh, with, a, with a product vision, uh, mostly you know, engineering backgrounds, that's kind of the thing. And we think we can help them you know, become really good CEOs. Um, the ones that sometimes don't make it out to the next stage have an inability to tell a clear and succinct story. They might build the best rocket ship ever, but maybe they can't describe it the right way that differentiates it enough from what else is in the market. So we are very focused when we're investing is understanding, yes, can you build this technically, but two is, can you tell a story? Can you tell a story that's succinct, that resonates, uh, do you have a clear value proposition at least that you start with, right? Because that value proposition may change three, four, five, or six times, but we, we need that storytelling ability. And in understanding, you don't have to have all the answers because it's, it's really, really just don't have all the answers, but understanding what go-to-market may look like. Are you thinking about doing a bottom-up motion? Are you thinking about doing a top-down motion? Why are you thinking about that? And then are your buyers used to kind of um, um, you know, purchasing in those manners. Walk me through at least. Walk me through how you think about it. Walk me through uh, data points around that. Right. So that would be the other thing: is is technical founders that don't have enough of a GTM motion and can tell a story. The third one uh, would be founders that are too optimistic and that scale and burn too quickly. Uh, I, I think the best founders that we have are the ones that um, uh, only step on the gas when they feel like the opportunity is there. And so, you know, someone that comes in and ends up hiring way too many people to start or starts hiring too many salespeople before they have product market fit and they end up burning cash. And, and instead of lasting 18 months, it lasts 12 months or 15 months or, or less. And those are, those are problematic. But frankly, you know, those are discussions that we have beforehand to make sure that we're all on the same page of, of when you step on the gas and when you don't. Because uh, we always like to tell founders as well, I mean, I'm thinking about um, maybe half our investments, there, there will be situations where founders come to us and say, hey, you know what? Um, I've got three kind of customer deployments I'm working on right now. Uh, I have a fourth one I'd like to do, but I can't do that with hi without hiring another kind of sales engineer. 
Uh, I might need another salesperson, and I might need two more engineers to round out the product. But if I do that, my burn rate's going to drop by six months. And that's where you know good partners like I'd like to think of ourselves as good partners. We'll say, okay, great. Why don't you just take another million and a half dollars? We'll give you slightly, you know, we'll give you a higher price than the last round, and we'll give you more runway, so you still get another 12 months of runway to get them to, you know, uh, better milestones, so they can get a higher valuation down the line. So, Ed, continuing on that theme, conventional wisdom says, you know, a CEO, whenever they are presenting to a public audience or whatever, they're always in fundraising mode. But, you know, they have multiple priorities. I mean, at that stage, they're focusing on products and customers. What is your advice to your CEOs, you know, who are just starting and they are getting, you know, VCs, you know, who want to invest in the company? What is your advice to CEOs and entrepreneurs? I think they need to strike a balance because if every founder in our portfolio took every VC meeting from someone that reached out to them, they would have zero time to actually build their product or talk to customers. So we kind of think about it as a phased approach. Phase one is build product. Phase two is get your first few customers kind of onboarded. And then phase three is when would you like to go out and raise money? And most investors like to have a series of data points with founders. They like to have coffee with founders when they're not raising. They want to get to know founders because that's incredibly important to uh, building that relationship over time and also for the founders to get to know uh, who they may be working with. It's not, it's not the firm, it's the person. And so I think it's a steady balance. We like to tell our founders, let's work backwards again. Let's, uh, let's use the 18-month framework. Depending on when you get your first few customers or pilots, you know, good investors who are invested in their company will start talking to some of their VC connections who might have a particular interest in the space to say, hey, this is what's going on with the business. Is this something that is interesting to you? Do you, know, do you want to meet the founder, right? So there's that, you want to have an investor that has those relationships that can prioritize those meetings earlier. So I think it's really important to actually control the process versus letting the process control you because that can happen if you just take inbound meeting after inbound meeting. And for a seed stage startup, they'll have less inbound than a Series C startup that's a hot company because most people may not know about them because they're, they're still kind of in stealth mode. And so what I like to say is, is, is maybe you should think about five or six folks that you might have coffee with every once in a while. There's no deck. There's no pitch. It's just kind of maybe getting advice on your business. And uh, as things may heat up, as you start closing a few customers, then you can kind of work with your, your investors as well and, and, and start figuring out if there's an opportunity to maybe have this round happen earlier. And so I think that's, that's kind of how we like to think about it. This is something that I think is in some ways stage agnostic, but, you know, perhaps more critical, you know, at the early stages of a company, and, and that is sales. You expect, you know, most CEOs to be very good salespeople. But at the same time, you know, when should uh, an early stage company hire their first salesperson? I mean, you've seen a lot of companies grow into, you know, a, a fairly large company. I mean, what is your advice to your CEOs on, on the topic of sales? From our perspective, the first thing that we like to see is that if a CEO doesn't do the first three or four sales themselves, then it's very hard for them to hire anyone. Because that's when you're understanding what it's like to install the product, you know, how do you onboard a new customer? What are the issues? And what, is, what are the types of skills that that new salesperson is going to need to work with potential prospects? The second answer would be, the worst thing you can do is hire a VP of sales too early. Because VPs of sales, for the most part, 
you know, have quotas that are pretty large and they ha need to have reps. I have had that experience happen to me in the past where we, ha we thought we had product market fit, where, but we really didn't. We hired a VP of sales. That VP of sales rolled out, you know, four different regions and there's a sales engineer underneath it. And then six months later, we realized that the product wasn't scaling and we had, a, we had to retool the thing. So that could be a mission critical mistake because the amount of money that is spent trying to ramp up a sales team, get them productive and uh, selling um, is, is substantial. Uh, and if your product's not ready, it could be the death of your company. So what we like to do is once you get the first three or four sales, it depends also on the cadence of your business. You know, a company like Sneak, S-N-Y-K .io, which is doing uh, security for developers, really looking at their open source. It's a bottom-up play where we have, I think now we have over 700,000 downloads a month. But, you know, we have this whole inbound engine kind of created and we couldn't keep up with the demand. So in a situation like that, in a bottom-up model, lots of open source companies are like that. Lots of developer companies are like that. Even lots of companies like Slack may be like that where you have inbound demand. You want to typically hire kind of two junior account reps. And the reason like the, I say to two, and they're not kind of VPs of sales, they're not, um, you know, heads of sales, is because you really want to understand and compare the two with each other. And... Is it the product? Is it the messaging, or is it the person? And you need—it's almost like a beta test. It's a, it's a test to see which one works out. So I think two is really important to kind of start with to kind of have these different tests. Maybe have them each do different messaging, and see kind of how the results work out. In some situations, um, for the right people, you could get a player coach. Let's say you call it a head of sales, where that person has—and they're not a VP. But it's a head of sales where that person's managed you know, five or six people before, but also really loves being in front of the customer and can get their hands dirty. That's actually a really, really good situation because that person can come in and help set the framework, you know, help set the sales motion, you know, put all the documentation together and kind of how that works. And then they can usually really good salespeople attract other good salespeople. Um, so that person may be able to bring on your first two reps. And, and I, I've seen that situation work out really well in a lot of times. But you also tell that person, guess what? I want to be very clear with you. You're going to come in. You're going to help us kind of get this going. And if you do really, really well, you will have a shot at being VP of sales. But you also have to be okay that you may not be that. And, and I think being clear about that is, is really important. But having someone that can get their hands dirty is, is the number one thing. So very different question, you know, to end this uh, series. Uh, culture. You know, we hear the word culture and it is thrown around, you know, quite often. You say some companies have good culture and some companies have bad culture. Uh, as, as an investor and board member, how do you check for the culture of that startup? And culture is more than just free lunch or, you know, you know uh, after work or a drinking session or whatever. How, how do you help a company or a CEO have good culture in their company? I think the hardest thing for any startup these days is hiring. Hiring really great people starts with having an amazing vision. Amazing vision for changing the world or, or it's not just about the product. It's there's, there's, how do you create a bigger mission? Um, for example, like uh, at Rahul at Superhuman, it says, be brilliant at what you do. That's what we wake up every day thinking about. So that's bigger than just selling a software product. Uh, sometimes he says, we, we spark joy, and it happens to be in the form of software for our, our users. And so you start with that kind of vision and embodiment of that vision, uh, and that can help you know, attract people and make them think every day about what is their mission. Uh, I think the second part about culture uh, is that 
we like to invest in when we actually do diligence and we're doing reference checking on founders. We all, clearly some of these folks are heads of engineering, uh, they're heads of product, maybe they're prior CEOs. We try to understand kind of what the culture that they built was like. How do they? How do their direct reports view them? How do their peers view them? You know, is it a kind of a collaborative and open culture? Uh, and the third part, I think that's really important as well, is you know how open are they to starting with building a diverse kind of workforce from day one? Because ultimately, we believe that if you have a diverse workforce, you're going to have to you're going to have a better company, and you're probably going to be able to uh, attract better talent over time because the, the pool is much larger for you. A great example would be. You know, if you're an enterprise software company selling security and you have 20 men, who's going to be that first woman that joins that company? Be, you could probably have to be someone, I, I, we joke, that had maybe had four brothers before that if you're enjoying that. You want to wire that in from day one and really kind of prioritize. You know, one of our best founders, uh, Alex Yampolsky, said that when he was doing some of his VP searches, he told the search firm, uh, I only want to see, you know, uh, minority people of color or I only want to see women for the first three months uh, for these candidates. Um, they have to be amazing candidates. I mean, the, the bar is not any lower, but only show me those folks first. I want you to work really, really hard in doing that because that's important to us because we're going to build a better company. So that's another piece piece of it as well. Um, and then over time, as the companies grow, the Glassdoor ratings become very important. You know, even like Salesforce, when they buy companies, they look at Glassdoor ratings as, a, as another metric. Of, yes, they can be gamed, but I think overall it gives you a general trend on where the business is going. So yeah, it's not about pinball machines or ping pong tables or just you know after dinner drinks, but it's creating an open, collaborative environment. It's being transparent about what you do, and it's having a mission that everyone and a vision that everyone believes in. Excellent. You know, I, I think that's very important, especially in this market where it is so difficult to get hard people. So that's that's good advice. I know I learned a lot today from this podcast, and I, I really want to thank you, Ed for an excellent uh, discussion about early stage investing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you want to learn more about Wipro Ventures, you can find us on the web at wipro.com slash ventures. Enterprise Masters is produced, recorded, and mixed by VSC. To learn more about how to harness the power of storytelling to grow your company, go to www.vscpr.com. Thanks for listening.